Well, today we continue on in our Isaiah sermon series titled uh, Isaiah, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. Today in Isaiah, if you want to open up uh, page 596 in your pew Bible, 596, Isaiah 36, uh, today Isaiah moves from poetry to prose. Chapters 39, 36 through 39 are historical narrative. They're, they're stories. In our passage today, Isaiah tells the story of Assyria coming to attack Jerusalem itself. The king is already, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, uh, and his field commander, um, Rabshakeh is what they call him, stands outside the gates of Jerusalem and they taunt the people of God. And seven times in the speech of the Rabshakeh, he says the words, the word trust. And the pivotal question he asks is this, in whom do you now trust? It's a question for us today. Think about it. We can look towards last year, maybe last month, and be reminded of a time when we trust God valiantly. But then a new threat appears. Could be a job loss or a wayward child or a debilitating illness. And the question before us is, in in whom do you now trust? Ray Ortland Jr. uh, makes this point. He says, we always live on the cutting edge of faith either faith in God or faith in something else. And yesterday's faith in God belongs to yesterday, in whom you now trust, in the struggle you are facing now, in whom do you now trust? I'm going to begin by reading, we got a lot to cover, but we'll go through it quickly. Uh, Begin by reading the first 22 verses of chapter 36, and then read the the rest later in the sermon. So, Isaiah 36. 1 through uh, 21, actually. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out of the city to him uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? 
Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We want to know God. We want to know his will. We want to know his way, and we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. It seems so ancient, so long ago, so irrelevant, wars in the past, but It's a battle against you and your people. And this very battle exists to this very day. And we as your people are tempted like those of old to not trust in the Lord to deliver them. And so I, we need this message today. Holy Spirit, empower us to receive it with joy and delight and faith, we pray. Amen. What is the most thrilling, exciting act in any circus? Is it not the high-flying trapeze? The flying trapeze is usually the, the last part of the show at the end of the night, and the lights go down, and those spotlights start searching around the dark hall. Then they focus on two really tall, skinny ladders. And they focus on two individuals climbing up step by step, 50 feet, maybe more, into the sky, and they stand perched on a tiny little metal platform. And then they both start swinging on their swings. 
And then one lets go and twists and flips and flies through the air, and the other one swings out and catches the other person. It's amazing, right? Now, what is necessary to succeed as a flying trapeze artist? I mean, think of a few things, right? Like maybe physical fitness, an intuitive sense of the laws of nature. Wait, I'm upside down now, right? You know. But more than that, you need two things mixed together. Mixed together in such a way as the two are inseparable. What is it that you need? You need daring trust. Daring trust. In chapter 36, God calls us to a daring trust in him. Daring trust is what worked inside of that shepherd boy, David, when he heard the taunts of Goliath, and he fought against Goliath and killed him. Daring trust is when that sinful woman sneaks her way into Simon the Pharisee's house so that she can worship and and wash Jesus' feet with her tears. Daring trust is when a Christian woman who longs to get married and have a family daringly trusts God in his plan for her life. And so she doesn't give in when her unbelieving friends keep pressuring her to date non-Christians. And with daring trust, she is committed to wait for a godly man. And with daring trust, she is even content not to be married if that be the Lord's will. That, my friends, is daring trust. The problem is, right, think about it. We're not often very daring, trusting people. Problem is we often settle for cautious trust. We tend to relegate daring trust to those really zealous Christians or missionaries, right? We tend to equate daring trust with some sort of recklessness. I think they went a little too far. Let me ask the parents here with kids who are still at home. If your child were to tell you that he or she wants to be a missionary in far-off lands, would you encourage them? Or would you promote the law degree? I'm afraid most Christians in America want their kids to have faith, just not daring faith. Christians today in America are often satisfied with the safety a safe and trustless life, rather than the life the Lord calls us to, a life of daring trust. One which perhaps takes you to Northwestern University with all your kids to run an RUF ministry. Crazy. On top of this, right, we can live today banking on how we trusted God years ago. How we were faithful in some great thing and God delivered and produced a wonderful salvation and whatever we were doing. And so what Isaiah wants us to see is that yesterday's faith is for yesterday and that every new day demands what? A new response to the question that's in verse 5. In whom do you now trust? Every day is either a new day to either trust in God or to trust in some sort of God's substitute Will we anchor ourselves on the word of God and the ways of God while we wait for the deliverance of God? Or or will we turn our trust elsewhere, take matters into our own hands, set our sights on worldly saviors? The people of God in our text 
this morning. They, they provide a great example of how hard it is to trust in God. Isaiah's point this morning is simple. Because only the Lord can truly deliver us, we must trust him and him alone. We're going to divide our time under two headings. First is the battle, the battle, and then the way. The battle and the way. With regards to the battle, the big idea here is that there exists a cosmic battle here on earth in which the world taunts us to give up on trusting God, but God calls us to live with daring trust in him to deliver us. Isaiah points us to an historical account of a real battle. This really happened, right? Like If you look at the, the annals of the Assyrians, Sennacherib uh, talked about how he kicked all the butts of the 39 cities that he took over. Of course, he leaves out his failure here in Jerusalem. Um, but anyway, that's kind of how people are, especially on like Facebook. Look at my good stuff. I'm not going to show my bad. It really happened, this war or this battle. Ortland states that there are two worlds that exist simultaneously on earth. There's a world dominated by sinful man, and then there's the higher world of the creator, the eternal world, to which his people live and fight for. And these two worlds are embattled in conflict every day, and we're all caught up in this spiritual tension, whether, whether we know it or not. This age tells us that, that this life, this very life we're living, our short 80 years, is our only chance at happiness. And that human power is the only thing that really counts. Only what is visible matters. Now, consider the war machine of Assyria. It had no counterparty that could stand against it, at least not on earth. Sennacherib rose to power in 705 B.C. In 701 B.C., his massive army has defeated all of the Judean cities, and now he's at the capital city of Jerusalem. The people are all hunkered down. There's a couple hundred thousand troops outside. And Sennacherib sent his trusted Rabshakeh, which really is just a title. It's field commander. He sent him to negotiate the surrender. Picture the scene with all these soldiers outside and the chariots and the horses and the Officials from Jerusalem are sent out to meet with the Rabshakeh. And where is he? Verse 2 tells us he stood by the conduit of the upper pool. Now, does this sound familiar? Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah went to meet King Ahaz at this very same pool 34 years earlier. Ahaz was fretting because another king was attacking from Syria, Rezin, and he knows that, that this... Their water supply is outside of the city. Not a good idea if you're going to get attacked. And he was fretting. And Isaiah said, don't worry. God will take care of you. He knows your weakness. He knows your great weakness. And he's going to provide the victory for you. And Ahaz, why don't you just ask God for a sign? He'll give a sign to prove it to you. And Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. Remember what God said? Isaiah says, well, I'm going to give you a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now it's 34 years later. So another kingdom is attacking, but Jerusalem, thankfully, has another king. The son of King Ahaz, King Hezekiah. And so the Rabshakeh stands there at that same pool of water, at the same conduit. Why? Because he wants to taunt the people Look where I'm at. 
I know where your greatest weakness is. I've conquered it. I'm here. Good luck. Give up, fools. The Rabshakeh speaks to the representatives from Jerusalem, and he shouts his taunts at everyone. He says to Hezekiah, verse 4 and 5, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? The Rapshake is asking, telling questions. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? God's people are accused of just resting in mere words. Senator Cherub and his army represents the godless rebellion ever present in our world today, mocking trust in God over and against trust in self in the pursuit of personal power. Our battle today is different but similar. The world presses us to stop trusting in God, his promises, his protection, his personal care, and instead chase after worldly saviors. We live in a world that taunts us for our commitment to holiness. We are accused of being homophobic or transphobic. The world haunts us for praying, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The world taunts God's people by insisting that our trust in God actually prevents us from experiencing a good life. You know, when I sold my computer business, so that I could become a full-time youth worker, my mother, who did not know the Lord, she vehemently objected. You've built such a wonderful company. Why on earth would you want to throw it away? Was her taunt towards me. She did a similar thing when I told her, I realized that wasn't a good idea, but I told her, Mom, I'm, I'm tithing to my church. I'm giving a 10% of what I earn. She says, what has that church ever done for you? Was her taunt. My friends, your taunts are probably different than that, but every day there's a war waging on this earth. And so every day we're faced with new taunts that beg the question, in whom do you now trust? Every day there's a war that is waging on this earth, and so every day we face new taunts. In our story, King Hezekiah had one big, huge time. His representatives, if it was up to them, those three guys, they would have just surrendered on the spot, you know. Here you go, lock me up, take me in. Do you see how they responded to the taunts? Pitifully, right? Verses 11 and 12. They want the Rapshakeh to stop speaking in the native tongue and start speaking in Aramaic. That was the, the language of the diplomats back then. So the people couldn't understand what was being said. See, the people of Jerusalem were all hanging out on the wall, listening in to the conversation. And these officials don't want the people to know how bad it is. But the Rabshakeh ups the taunts, and he shouts out loud for the people to hear that the siege is going to be so bad that they'll be forced to eat their own poop and drink their own pee. Beginning in verse 13, he taunts them, telling them what not to do. Don't listen to Hezekiah. 
verse 13 and 15. Then the Rapshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. Is that not how the world is? Don't listen to those Christians. Your God won't deliver you. Seven times the Rapshakeh uses the words deliver, and he taunts them saying, do not let Hezekiah make you, force you to trust in the Lord. Now the Rapshakeh also tells the people what to do. Surrender to us, for we have a better gospel for you. Did you pick up on it? It's a pretty important part of the text. Verses 16 and 17. Uh, it says, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and his own fig tree, and each one will drink the water of his own cistern. And then I'm going to take you out of the, out of the away from this land to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine and, and bread and vineyards. What is this offer? It's an offer to stop trusting in God, surrender to the enemy of God, and then you'll be taken away from this land, the promised land, and given another land like the land where the king sent a cherub will care for you. Would you believe him? Would you believe him? Do you see the subterfuge? God had already delivered his people to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, the reason why things weren't going so great in the land for God's people wasn't God's fault. It's because God's very people had, had turned from God, and so God rightly withdrew his blessing. He will do that to us as well. But all along, God kept saying, return to me, and I will return my blessing. Is that not what we've seen all through Isaiah so far? That's God's character. That's his desire. His desire is to shower his people with mercy. Now, the word gospel literally means good news. We live in a world that is constantly telling us that they have the good news. But sadly, their good news is but a parody, right? A parody of God's gospel. Senator problem promises a land like the promised land, Right? But it's not the promised land. This is what the world does to us as well. Turn from your God and, and find your deliverance in the ways of the world. You're going to get your own plot of land that you got by yourself. And you can experience happiness apart from God. That's the battle. Now for the way. The way of daring trust. Hezekiah models for us the way of daring trust. The people of God are at the end of their rope, right? You've been following through. They're at the end of their rope. This whole Egypt thing with the horses and chariots did not work so well. By the way, that was Hezekiah's dad who brought all that about. The people at the end of the rope, all their schemes of self-salvation have failed. You ever felt that way? I've tried and tried. All my earthly schemes apart from God, they're not working. And now what they realize is that there's no more chess pieces on the chess table except for the one piece, the king. And now they hear the words, checkmate. What will the king do? 
There is offer on the table. Give in, surrender, negotiate some sort of concession. Get yourself a nice palace in this foreign land. Take care of your family. Get some gold. Deny the gospel. Live, leave the promised land. Or, and here's the hard part, or turn with daring trust towards God. What would you have done? It's a big army. Your people are going to be drinking their pee and eating their poop. So to you, what would you do? Trust in mere words? If king, so this is one of the most pivotal points in the history of all God's people. It's one of the big turning points. If King Hezekiah and the people bow to center cherub, it's all over. But instead, Hezekiah opts for daring trust, for this is the way of God's people. What does it look like? Let me read from verse 22 and, and then into chapter 37, verse 7. It's not a lot. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. How does Hezekiah respond? As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, the evil words and taunts, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. And God will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. We'll see next week. It was his two sons ran a sword through their dad and took over the kingdom. Hezekiah demonstrates the way of daring trust. And what does it look like? Well, first it doesn't look like, I'm going to go charge out and take over. No, it looks like repentance. Unlike his father Ahaz, King Hezekiah gets real with God. When Hezekiah's officials returned and told him what the Rabshakeh said, Hezekiah tore his clothes and he put on a sackcloth. Like, imagine like a burlap coffee bean bag, right? Far different than the coronation in England yesterday, right? 
sackcloth, tearing of one's clothes. It's a biblical sign of mourning, but also of repentance and being one who is under humiliation. The nation has sinned against God, and now this peril has come upon God's people, and the king carries much of the blame. But now Hezekiah no longer cares about outward appearances, so he takes off his royal wardrobe and wears a burlap bag, and he turns to God in deep need. My friends, the first step for us when we realize we've stopped trusting in God's gospel is not to begin by asking God to get us out of our current jam. Step one is to repent, to acknowledge our lack of faith, to acknowledge our sin, and rest in the mercy of God. Repentance prepares us to be like fertile ground into which the word of God can be sown with great effect. That is what Hezekiah then does. He sends for Isaiah, the prophet, so he can get a word to Isaiah so he can hear a word from God. Notice the humble, honest message of Hezekiah. You know, when we find we're at the end of our rope and we can no longer save ourselves, our words can be quite humble and honest and raw. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, so these are the leaders talking to Isaiah. Hezekiah's words, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. Great honesty in Hezekiah's words. He's saying, we blew it. Our lives are not living proof that God exists. All our efforts, all that they have done, they've done nothing but exhaust us. We have no strength left. We must be delivered. You ever feel that way? I have no strength left. I need deliverance. Oh, to start every day with the acknowledgement that we have no useful strength in ourselves except what God gives us in the power of the Holy Spirit. But also notice, Hezekiah isn't just concerned for the people of God. He has God's honor and glory and his name in mind. See, when the people of God fail, listen, when we, the people of God, fail to live lives of daring trust, what happens? Well, ultimately, it's our God who is mocked. And he's ridiculed because of us, those hypocritical Christians. This concerns Hezekiah and should, con should concern us. Verse 4, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. The king doesn't feel like he's mocked. He knows God's the one being mocked. And maybe God will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. My friends, when we live in this trustless life, we... We present opportunities for this world to mock us. But when we respond to the question, in whom do you now trust? And we respond with daring trust. The world gets to see what? They get to see what joyful obedience and trust looks like. They might not like it. They might disagree. But what they will witness is the real deal, not a watered-down Christianity. Now, it's only after genuine repentance and a longing for God's name 
to be hallowed on earth. It's then that the Lord responds with your love for his people. Verse 6 and 7, the Lord speaks and says, do not be afraid. You know how many times the Bible says that to us? Do not be afraid. I've got this. He says, I know the Assyrians have reviled me. I've heard it. I've got ears. Not literally, but I can hear. Now check out what he says. God says, I'm going to put a spirit in Sennacherib so that he hears a mere rumor and it causes him to go home, to pack up all of these people and leave and he's going to die by a sword. Do you remember the Rapture case taunt? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Uh, yeah, says God. Sennacherib was trusting in his might, and he had a lot of it. He accused God's people of trusting in mere words, but ironically, it would be mere words, a rumor that does him in. Amazing, right? God delivers, and he delivers in such a way that we go, ah, wow, it's pretty amazing. He used mere words. So why is this story in the Bible? couple of reasons. One is that we live in a world that still mocks and reviles and taunts our faith in God. As Eva read earlier from Ephesians chapter 6, God has given us armor, the full armor of God, because we battle not so much against flesh and blood, but we battle against the enemy. We battle against the spiritual powers in the heavenly realms, the powers of darkness that are over and against God himself. There truly is a cosmic battle going on. We should know this. It should be a part. We shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, there's a cosmic battle. But it should be a part of our everyday, you know, we should know that what's going on is not no minor thing. And so in this battle between good and evil, the Lord calls us to suit up for battle, right? That's daring trust, isn't it? Now, listen to this. If you do not live with daring trust, and at least try to speed up for battle every day. You can expect two things. Um, one, not so good. Uh, here we go. One, you will escape the scrutiny and the taunts of your unbelieving friends and family and coworkers. You, you won't have to go through that. But sadly, you're going to miss out on, the, on God's miraculous and powerful work in your life as you daringly trust in him to deliver you. You're going to miss out on that. Does that bother you? It bothers me. I can't tell you how many times I have not lived with daring trust. This is a sermon for me. Another reason why this story is in the Bible is because living this way is hard, right? right? And we can easily lose our nerve and give in. And when we do give in, right, what kind of goes through our head? Is it not something along these lines? We tell ourselves, don't worry, I still trust in God, but just not with this challenge today. But don't worry, I'll be at church on Sunday. My friends, we must agree that living this way is not the daring trust that God is calling us to live by his grace and by his power. And listen, the watching world looks at the church when we live this way, and what, what do they think? What do they, what do they observe? They, they, they find no compelling reason to investigate the Christian life and come to trust in Christ. 
Ortland writes, if, if no one ever asks us to explain the hope that is in us, is our hope any different from their hope? One reason we see so few conversions today is that our Christianity isn't an alternative to convert to. It's padded, safe, predictable worldliness with occasional stop-offs at church. We think it's God's job to ensure our undisturbed routines. God thinks it's our job to prove how real he is in the real world today. My friends, this passage challenges us to repent of our safe faith and our worldly saviors and so receive Christ and his power and live by this daring faith. One where we diligently seek God's will to be done in our lives, where we do pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and we really mean it. God wants us, listen, God wants us to experience his glory as he delivers us. And how can we know this for sure? Well, not by mere words. How so? We know that the gospel we believe is not mere words because a real human and divine son of God lived and died and rose again with the greatest of daring trust. Did he not? Let me ask you, and I'm asking myself at the same time, would you have had enough daring trust to go to a cross and die believing that you would be raised up once again to life? Would you? I don't think I would. But oh, the daring trust of Jesus Christ. Jesus climbed that high-flying trapeze of the cross. There was no floodlights on him. The crowds weren't cheering him on. They were mocking him. You saved others. Save yourself if you really are the Son of God. But there he was. Not mere words, but the living word, dying. And it was all God's plan. God's plan is to deliver his people from the dominion of sin and death. The same God who spoke to the prophet Isaiah and said, do not fear, trust me to deliver you. This same God speaks to the death and resurrection and says to us now, do not fear, let me deliver you, for I do not save with mere words. I save you with the costly, daring trust of my divine son. And so, my friends, this, this grace, it rightly changes us, right? It changes how we live now. We can live lives of daring trust because Christ died for us with the greatest of daring trust. And we can live lives of daring trust because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead 
now dwells in God's people. The motto here at Grace Church, Grace Church is what? Alive in Christ. God has given us life in Christ by his spirit. And so Christian, when you enter each day with daring trust in God, he surely empowers you for his glory. And so the watching, faithless world, they see you, and to them you become what? The living word of the one true God in heaven for them to see and hear. They see Christ in you. And so as we gather to this Lord's table here in a moment, allow yourself to address the question, in whom do you now trust? Let's pray. Father, we confess it is really, really hard to live a life of daring trust. One, our own flesh just doesn't want it. We want a simple life. We want you to be a God of blessing without much effort on our part. And we, we believe many of the lies that this world taunts us with. And we also get afraid of the taunters. May we, by the power of your spirit, be changed this day. May we trust more and more in Christ. May we believe the gospel is good, and it's not mere words. We believe in the risen Lord Jesus, who is with us now. Amen.